Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sad Agamaya Tamasohomaham Jyoti Gamaya Mrityormam Amritam Gamaya Avir Ahavir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaha Te Namaha Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. Well, happy Mother's Day to you all. My subject this morning is the mystery of human vibrations. And um, this morning we're not going to be talking about soul, God, and religion. Rather, we're going to be talking about thought force, and auras, and psychospheres, and power places. In our study of the lives of the saints, we will come across many references to such phenomena. And our subject this morning on the theory of human vibrations, well, it's an esoteric, pre-modern, pre-scientific theory that nevertheless gives us a naturalistic explanation of many of the manners and customs and popular beliefs of different religions of the world. We can start with the word vibrations. A vibration is just a fixed pattern of regular movement, a reciprocal motion, which is forward and backward, or up and down. You can think about a drum. You hit the drum, and it goes up and down. You strike a bell, and the bell will reverberate and will ring. If you observe any cyclic movement, you look at your washing machine, it turns round and round, going through its cycles, you'll notice that the whole machine is vibrating. Why? Because it's a regular, repetitive pattern that's moving through. If you open the hood of your car, you look at your engine, you can hear it's humming, but you can see also that it's vibrating. It's vibrating because all of the parts in that engine are moving in regular, repetitive patterns. Everything in this universe vibrates. The law of vibration is that every created thing in this universe, from the smallest atom up to the, the sun and the moon and the stars, all are in a state and associated with vibration. And in fact, it says in the ancient Upanishads, yadidam kincha jagatsarvam prana ejati nisritam, that in the very beginning of creation, the Brahma created this world through the vibrations of the prana, 
That means the fundamental matter and energy of the universe. Vibration really, in its highest sense, is really a struggle for existence. And uh, everything in this universe has to struggle to maintain its being. Everything is struggling to maintain its being. That means that it's impacted by forces from outside. It's acted upon by outside forces. And of course, because every action has an equal and opposite reaction, it will react. And that's what existence is. Existence is just resistance. And so everything in this world is in vibrations, is in a state of vibration. Now, our subject this morning is the mystery and I use the word mystery, which is not a very good word, because that's a word that is frowned upon by the Vedantins. They don't like mysteries. The opposite of the word science is mystery. Mystery is all about something mysterious, hidden, secret. So really my purpose this morning is to demystify this whole subject, to try my best to rationalize it according to the thinking of the yogis, and to explain some of these things, uh, hoping that we can establish that they stand to reason. Now, my subject here is I talk about human vibrations. Human vibration. Of course, what makes us human is our capacity for thought. And therefore, uh, vibrations which are particularly human are thought vibrations. And according to the Sankhya philosophy, you know, there are six systems of Indian philosophy, and Swami Vivekananda, who is the founder of this Vedanta society, gave several important lectures on the Sankhya philosophy, quite different from the Vedanta philosophy, and yet it is very helpful for us. It kind of gives us kind of a scaffolding that enables us to understand the teachings of the Advaita Vedanta philosophy. And one of the doctrines of the Sankhya is that thoughts are things. That is, there's no difference between a thought, that is what we consider to be something which is immaterial and metaphysical, and a thing like a rock or a stone or a tree. Albeit one is very subtle and causal, and the other is more gross. So in Indian philosophy, you'll find there's no different. They have, never in Indian philosophy did they deal with what is the, one of the primary problems of Western philosophy, that is the mind-body problem. This does not occur in Indian philosophy because the mind and the body are both aspects of the same thing. And you just go from gross to subtle to causal. And so we don't have two different ontologies. It's all just kind of one spectrum of energy. So thoughts are things. And by a thought, of course, we mean, in order to think, we can't think without words. So a thought really is a word. A complete thought is a sentence. To think is to speak low. To speak is to think aloud. And so when we're talking about thoughts, we're really talking about words and sentences. And just as when we speak, we cause a vibration in the air, and that sound wave propagates through the air, similarly it is with thought also. That when we think a thought, that is when we hold the, the complete thought, a sentence, in our mind, it causes a vibration in the chitta, that is in the mind stuff, 
travels through the akasha, the subtle space. There are different kinds of space. There's the mahakasha, that's our gross physical space. Then there is the chitta akasha, the mind space. Then there's the chitta akasha, which is another level of space. So that thought travels through the mind space, just as the spoken word travels by sound waves through gross space. Now, one of the mysterious effects of uh, thought vibration, we can see in our own bodies. And in fact, one of the principles of the science of mind is that for every vibration or for every movement in the mental world, there's a great law of correspondence, there's a corresponding movement in the physical. And our body kind of hears everything that our mind says. And if you read in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, who is a great exemplar of all of our discussion here, soul, God, and religion, you remember that he often, when a new devotee comes into the room, he often notes the physical features of that person. That is, he remarks on the physiognomy and the physiology. Physiology just means the, the physiognomy is kind of the physiognomy, phys- physiognomy is the whole body. The physiognomy is kind of the face, facial features and the gestures and the movements and the phrenology of the head, the shape of the head. Of course, today, such observations are all considered to be easily dismissed as uh, pseudoscience, old-fashioned, superstitious thinking. But uh, there is a grain of truth in the old sciences of phrenology and of physiognomy, in that the yogis maintain that our thoughts and our feelings do have some influence on our physical features. Now, we're not saying nowhere in Vedanta do we maintain the thought that thoughts create things. Thought does not create matter. This is not an idealistic philosophy. But thoughts do have their influence, that is the subtle, has its influence on the gross. And uh, if you remember on one occasion, Sri Ramakrishna, young, one of his young disciples, Rakhal, maybe he was about 14 at that time, he came into the room, and Sri Ramakrishna looked at him and said, um, there seems to be a shadow over your face. Have you been telling lies? And of course, the, the young boy, he was shocked to hear this. He said, well, no, of course not. I haven't been telling. Why would you ever say such, say such a thing? He was kind of mystified by that statement of Sri Ramakrishna. Later on, he thought, yeah, you're right. You know, in the, this mor- in the morning before, he had had a little incident with his grandmother in which he had told her a, a fib. He'd forgotten about it. And so later on, he remarked when he told that story to his, so that incident of his disciples, he related that. He thought that the master had been able to see some subtle change in the subtle features of the face. You know, in the, just in the face, you know, is that there are hundreds and hundreds of muscles in the face. You change one little tiny little thing, and all your facial features change. And so there's nothing supernatural, really, or mystical about it. 
But he observed that, the, uh, that there was some subtle change. We can think about, as an example, we think about the musical instrument called the, um, the tuning fork. If you strike a tuning fork, it begins to vibrate and it begins to hum at a particular frequency. And uh, if there are other tuning forks in the proximity, they find that those forks also will begin to vibrate at the same frequency. It's called sympathetic vibration, resonance, and uh, showing that vibration can influence a physical object. There was some work, interesting work, that was done on this subject by a guy named Schladny. Around the turn of the century, he, he was very interested in vibrations. And he did one experiment, which today you can see the pictures in books on this kind of occult subject, where he took a, a, a large pan, a metal plate, and on the plate he put a thin layer of, of fine sand. And then taking a bow, like of a violin, he began to stroke the very edge of that plate with the bow such that the plate just began to vibrate ever so slightly. And as he did so, the sand began to dance into different patterns. And it shows just within a minute or so, the sand has formed itself into different shapes and patterns, showing that the subtle vibrations do influence things. And uh, according to the Sankhya philosophy, this is just a very naturalistic phenomena that is the causal, our causal body. If our causal body begins to vibrate, it's natural that it will be, there will be a sympathetic vibration in the subtle body. As you know, we have five bodies. The gross physical, the, the energy body, the emotional body, the mind body, the, the soul, like this, it goes like a... And they're all part of a spectrum. So when the subtle begins to vibrate, the causal vibrates, the subtle by sympathetic resonance begins also to vibrate. And when the subtle vibrates, the, the gross form also, by, by sympathetic resonance itself begins to vibrate. Makes sense. We can see the influence of these thoughts, of thought vibration. That's human vibration. We can see the influence of thoughts on the physical form, is what the yogis maintain. That is to say, if one of our thoughts has a characteristic vibration, it makes sense to assume that the sum total of our thoughts and beliefs that we hold, which really represents our deepest, our, our character, the whole belief system that we have about ourselves, that that character itself, the sum total of our thoughts, will itself have a characteristic vibration. And in fact, the yogis maintain that our character vibrates and emanates from us like an aura. Now, um, we know that around our body, that is like outside of our skin, we're enveloped by uh, uh, different layers of different kinds of auras. And there's nothing supernatural or occult about this. For example, we have a heat aura around us. We radiate heat. And uh, if you have a heat-sensitive camera, you can take a photograph of the heat body. And even though you, even though you can't make out the physical features of the face of the person, 
you can see at a great distance, you can see that, yes, there is a body of heat that's moving through at a particular location. That's why if you uh, were to commit a murder and you take the body deep into the forest, way, miles and miles, nobody sees you, anybody sees you, just bury that body down six feet under the ground, cover it all very nicely, walk out of the forest. Later on, the police, they come into the forest and they can't track you or anything because you've covered your trail so well, but they have heat-sensitive equipment. They just go, shh, they scan the whole forest and bam, they locate, yeah, there's a little location there that's radiating heat. What is that location? They begin to dig, sure enough, there's the body. Still radiating heat, even though it was dead. Well, similarly it is, we have around our bodies, we have an aura of uh, odor. That is, there's an olfactory bubble. CO2 and uh, uh, bacteria and different kinds of scents that maybe we can't smell. But if we have a dog or some animal, they can very easily track our scent. So that's the olfactory aura around, around the body. Similarly, we have a, a, an aura of electromagnetism around us. Our whole body is radiational. That is, we're, we're, like, we're like radioactive entities. And there are different elements in our body that, that radiate alpha rays and gamma rays and x-rays and all that can be photographed as part of our aura. Similarly, the yogis maintain that we have an aura of character and that, uh, in fact, because of that, everything that we touch will uh, take the mark of our character. And just as when you touch something, you will leave a fingerprint or a heat print Similarly, it is that when you touch something, you will leave the imprint of your character. And this happens by sympathetic vibration. It happens by a transfer of magnetic properties. That is, we leave the mark of our character wherever we go. This is why, for example, the Raja Yogis are very careful about the food that they eat, because they maintain that um, food, which has been handled by a person of bad character, will itself somehow carry and transmit the qualities of the character of that person. That is, there is an aura of, see in the Upanishads, it's ahara shuddhau, sattva shuddhi, sattva shuddhau, dravasmriti. That means when the food is pure, this is an old dictum of the Chandogya Upanishad. When the food is pure, the body becomes pure. And when the body becomes pure, the mind becomes pure. When the mind becomes pure, then your memory becomes firm and you can remember your true nature. So like that, they link this up with spiritual practice. And that in order to be successful in spiritual practice, we have to have a pure mind. And our mind, according to the Sankhya philosophy, is just matter just like the body, only albeit more subtle and more causal. And so there is a causal effect. There's a linkage between the body and the mind. And so it makes sense that yogis are careful about the food that they eat. And in fact, in the Raja Yoga, 
They're talking here about food, but it really holds true for many different things. They talk here about purity and impurity, the three doshas of food. And as you know, of course, by food, we don't just mean physical food, but we need, we have, because we have five bodies, so we have physical food, we need emotional food, we need, we need intellectual food, we need spiritual food. And all of those foods need to be pure. How do we pure? Well, there's three kinds of impurities. The first kind of impurity is called jati dosha. Let's say, for example, that someone brings you a glass of, you're very thirsty, someone brings you a glass of seawater. Can you drink that? No, you, you, it's impotable. You can't drink it. By its very nature, it's not suitable for consumption. Jati dosha. Let's say that someone else brings you a glass of water and it's all, the glass is all covered with greasy fingerprints. You want to drink that water? No. It's unsanitary. That's called nimitta dosha. But then the yogis maintain, remember, see the reasoning here. The reasoning is that everything in the universe is gross, subtle, and causal. That's the principle. So whatever we say about the gross, it makes sense that the similar principle holds true for the, for the subtle and the causal. So similarly, the, there's a third dosha, which is called the ashraya dosha. And that means is that if a person of impure character, if a, if a glass of water were, bro were brought to you which is impure, now what does that mean? You may ask, what? that's why we read the lives of the saints. Because as you know, Sri Ramakrishna on one occasion, he visited the house of uh, the pundit Shashadar Tarkachudamani on the day of the car festival. There it was very hot. He asked for a glass of water. And a man went out and brought him. Now, this was a man. He had uh, a big tilak mark on his forehead, wearing beads, rudraksha beads. He had all the marks of religion all over his body. Looked like a very religious man. He went out and he brought that glass of water. He brought it to Sri Ramakrishna. Sri Ramakrishna took the water. And let, as it usually goes up like this, he's thirsty. He's trying to drink. Something won't allow, he can't put the glass to his lips, so he puts it down. Someone else seeing this went, they thought that something maybe had fallen into the water. So someone else went and out, brought another glass of water. Sri Ramakrishna took the glass, drank it. But sitting nearby was a young disciple, that is Swami Vivekananda in his early days. Sitting nearby, he is observing all this. And he saw that there was nothing in the water. The water was completely clean. And he had heard tell about this, the yogis, they talk about the ashraya dosha. And so later on he made inquiries about this first man who had all the marks of religion. What is this, uh, who is he? What is his character? Oh, it turns out he's a man of notorious bad character. He's a cruel, evil man. And so it kind of made sense that uh, the glass of water bore the imprint of his character. Nothing supernatural or weird or occult about it. It's based on esoteric reasoning. The gross, the subtle, and the causal. And um, this theory of human vibrations, it would also help us to explain some of the, some more of the peculiar beliefs of the yogis. And by the yogis here, we just mean those who practice
different forms of yoga. For example, in our uh, worship service, as part of our regular worship, we offer fruits and sweets to the deity. And after the worship is over, those, that plate of food is brought down. It's called prasad. Prasad means is that it's blessed. It's been blessed. It's holy food. And we can ask the question, well, what is it that makes prasad holy? Why is that considered to be holy food? Well, here we can see what just by common sense, of course, psychologically, we know that it's been associated with the ritualistic worship in the shrine, and therefore in our minds, it's associated with God and with religious practice, so that when we see it, we're told it's holy food, we associate it with thoughts of soul God and religion. And so like that, it kind of maybe reminds us of divine things. That would be a psychological interpretation. But the yogis go further. They say, that no, it's not just that. They say that the food is uh, in devotional, that is, in bhakti yoga. It's maintained that in certain philosophies, even of the Vedanta philosophy, that is, in certain dualistic philosophies, that God himself has come down from on high and has partaken of that food, albeit at some kind of causal, subtle level, and that God has actually touched that food. And it bears the mark of his divine presence. And that that explains why, indeed, that prasad is to be considered to be holy food. We have something of the similar folk belief, just in common parlance in American English, when we um, recognize, or we feel at least, that food, when it's prepared with love, and served with love and caring, that it's good food. And that food which is prepared uh, with a negative attitude, and it's served to us with a curse, we, uh, it doesn't it taste good. It's not good food. What's the, and what is it? TLC. That's, that, that's the tender, loving care. That's the secret ingredient. The yogis kind of make a, make a subtle science of it. They say, yeah, there really is a TLC that kind of makes a difference in the food as it's prepared. Thought vibrations, that is human vibrations. It helps us to explain also something of why in all religions of the world the uh, devotees revere sacred relics. Now a relic is something which is a, a physical object that has somehow been associated with the life of a saint and that is believed to be, to be holy and sacred. Why? Because it is, it's associated with a holy person. It may be a lock of his hair, maybe something that he's carried or touched. And it's kept as a sacred relic. And devotees who believe that if they touch that relic and devotees report that they get a blessing, from touching those sacred relics. And according to yoga psychology, well, there's a common sense explanation for that. And that is, is that the, the object itself carries a kind of biosympathetic resonance, still kind of vibrates or carries the impression of that person or that man of God. And the theory is, is that when any saint has touched something 
or has lived in a particular place, that his character will influence the atmosphere of that place. This, uh, this theory of uh, human vibrations, it explains to us something of what we would call the psychosphere of a place. And uh, we know that a particular place, maybe usually we think of something like a holy place or, or a temple, we say that it has a presence. And by that, somehow we mean, devotees mean that somehow they feel when they enter into that place, that they feel that their minds are lifted to uh, something of a, of a higher place. You remember how, in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, on one occasion, he went on pilgrimage with Mathur Babu. They got, were in a river boat. They were going up from Calcutta, going up the river Ganges to the city of Banaras. In the course of that river journey, they were to pass by a uh, town, it's called Navadwip, where a great saint of Bengal, his name was Sri Chaitanya, that was his birthplace. Famous, famous place of pilgrimage in India, regarded as a very holy place, Navadwip. And so Sri Ramakrishna was up there on the deck of the boat, by the railing, as the steamboat moved up the river, eagerly waiting for the boat to pass by that village of Navadwip. But as they passed by, they pointed out the village. There it is. He looked there, and he, he expected that usually on those occasions, he would become excited, and he'd become enthusiastic, and his mind would rise to a higher level, and he'd start to have religious, spiritual feelings in the presence of such holy man or holy place. But as he passed by, he didn't, he didn't uh, feel anything about that place. And uh, the, the, the boat continued on for several minutes, and Sri Ramakrishna, still on the deck, suddenly began to become excited. He entered into what appeared to be like an ecstatic state. And uh, later on, he reported that he had had a vision of Sri Chaitanya. And uh, you may ask, well, how is that? They've already passed, now the dwip is down river. Kind of like a delayed reaction, isn't it? Well, it turns out that History tells us that, in fact, the river Ganges is a river that has a lot of sand shoals, you know, and the river, as the river, year after year, changes, it shifts its bank, the bank changes. The river cuts in, cuts out sand banks. And, in fact, there was an old village, Navadwip, where Sri Chaitanya actually lived, was actually upriver. Two or three minutes from the, uh, th that village was washed away. This, the river turned its course. They had to re rebuild the river, the village downstream. And so we see kind of a corroboration here of our, of our theory of the psychospheres. Now, when you think about that one, it appears to be um, good to think about it. Sri Ramakrishna says in one place that my experiences are for others to refer to. Of course, we believe that Sri Ramakrishna was a great incarnation like Jesus or Buddha. So as we study his life, everything in his life kind of seems to have a deeper meaning. So we can ask, ask ourselves about this particular incident. How is it possible that let's say that a psychosphere is in a particular place, but that place, Navadwip, was completely gone? There was nothing left there. The village had moved downstream. 
There were no buildings. All the trees were gone. All the rocks, all the sand, all that had been washed away. Of course, the answer of the yogis is very simple, and that is, is that any location in space-time... See, a location, we know, is just a block of space-time. And space is not just emptiness. It's not just nothingness. It's akasha. That is, everything in this universe is full. There's no, there's no emptiness. There's no... All we call it space. Looks like there's nothing there. But actually, it's a block of space-time. And that block has got gross, subtle, and causal aspects. Now here, the gross aspects have been washed away. The village, the buildings, the rocks, the trees, those have all been moved downstream. But the subtle space remains. The same location still vibrates. The causal vibration is still there. And so our theory still holds true. That is, the thought is carried by the psychosphere. This is one of the principles of esoteric philosophy. The principle is that whatever, whatever is struck rings. Everything is like a bell. Whatever is struck rings. And um, when you think a particular thought, your mind, is con even after that thought has passed, it continues to vibrate with that thought. Similarly, it is with a holy man, that when he lives in a particular place, that place continues to vibrate with his character. Oftentimes, yogis, that is, or saints, or sages, when they live in a particular place for a long time, meditating there and doing spiritual practice over a long period of time, they create a psychosphere. And uh, the intensity of that psychosphere can be increased by other people who come and visit that place and who engage in the same activities. And the idea is, is that uh, two waveforms, I mean to speak in the language here of vibration science, two waveforms can somehow lock into phase or into sync, and that they're both vibrating together. And the vibration increases, the frequency remains the same, but the amplitude of the vibration increases. And this is the principle of the high fidelity amplifier, that it amplifies the wave form. And so now we can understand if we accept something of this uh, esoteric teaching, we can understand why devotees visit holy places. Because it helps us to raise our minds. It helps you to meditate. It helps you to do some spiritual practice. And just as when the vibration of your thoughts, it affects your body and it affects the things around you. Similarly also, your thoughts will carry to a distant location. And just as when you throw a stone into a, a pond, there's a splash and there's a ripple effect. And those uh, waves of water continue to radiate out from the center and would continue to radiate on forever if there were no limits to the pond. Similarly, it is too with our thoughts. And Swami Vivekananda says in one occasion there, if a man goes into a cave and shuts himself up in that cave and thinks one truly great thought and then dies, the influence of that thought will penetrate the walls of the cave and uh, vibrate through space and will permeate the whole of 
the human race. So, we've been talking this morning about thought vibrations and about uh, some of the phenomena that's associated with the mystery of human vibrations. In our study of the lives of the saints and sages, we're going to come across a lot of such incidents. And uh, I've tried this morning a little bit to demystify, to explain, to rationalize some of this esoteric, the esoteric teaching behind the claims of the yogis. And understanding something of the background beliefs, I think, will help us to appreciate more the experiences of the saints. Maybe it will help us to uh, open our minds to the possibilities of subtle and causal phenomena and uh, maybe also to help us to understand some of our own experiences and our own spiritual practices. Om Dyo Hoshantihi Antariksha Hamshantihi Pritivi Ishantihi Apashantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantirehi Om Shantihi 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 Om peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace Enter our souls and beings. Om. Peace. Peace. Peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.